Chapter 4 The Christian Hope Life in the Land of the Promise Made to Abraham In one of the most solemn declarations of all time, the Almighty God promised to give Abraham an entire country. On a mountaintop somewhere between Bethel and Ai, in the land of Canaan, God commanded the father of the faithful, as he's called in Romans 4 verse 16, to, quote, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For the entire land you are looking at, I will give to you and your descendants forever. That's Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. As an additional assurance of God's gift to him, God then instructed Abraham to, quote, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. That's from Genesis 13, verse 17. Abraham's conception of the ultimate reward of faith was firmly linked to the earth. As he looked northward, Abraham would have seen the hills marking the border with Samaria. Towards the south, the view extended to Hebron, where later the patriarchs were to be buried in the only piece of land ever owned by Abraham. Genesis 23, 17-20 To the east lay the mountains of Moab, and to the west the Mediterranean Sea. The divine oath guaranteed to Abraham perpetual ownership of a large portion of the earth. Later the promise was repeated and made the basis of a solemn covenant to be cherished by subsequent Israelites as the foundation of hope for Israel and mankind. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations as an everlasting covenant and I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you now reside as a foreigner all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession that's Genesis 17 verses 7 and 8 it would not seem possible that the terms of God's promise could be misunderstood and yet, by a miracle of misinterpretation, traditional Christian theology has handled these innocent passages in a way which deprives Abraham of his inheritance and makes God an unreliable witness. Christian preachers over the centuries have had almost no interest in the land as the inheritance promised to Abraham and the faithful. This can be seen by inspecting the indexes of standard systematic theologies, Bible dictionaries, and commentaries, or indeed by listening to sermons in which, strangely, much is said about the prospect of, quote, heaven and almost nothing of the land in which Abraham hoped to reside permanently. As Gerhard von Rad says, in the first six books of the Bible, there's probably no more important idea than that expressed in terms of the land promised and later granted by Yahweh.
That's from Gerhard von Rad's book, The Problem of the Hexateuch and Other Essays, cited by W.D. Davies in his book, The Gospel and the Land, written in 1974. The promise is unique. I quote, among all the traditions of the world, this is the only one that tells of a promise of land to a people. That's from M. Buber's book, Israel and Palestine, written in 1952. Because the land is promised on oath, another scholar suggests it might more properly be called the sworn land. So compelling was the promise of land to Abraham that it became a, quote, living power in the life of Israel. The promise to Abraham becomes a ground for ultimate hope. There's a gospel for Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. This fact was recognized by Paul. He spoke of the Christian gospel as having been preached in advance to Abraham. That's Galatians 3 verse 8. An apostolic statement which throws a flood of light on the content of the New Testament good news and shows that biblical Christianity is embedded in the Hebrew Bible. W.D. Davies points out that large sections of the Old Testament make, and I quote, the divine promise to Abraham the bedrock on which all the subsequent history rests. Von Rad maintains that, and I quote, the whole of the Hexateuch, Genesis to Joshua, in all its vast complexity was governed by the theme of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in the settlement of Canaan. It is the thesis of this book that the Abrahamic promise permeates the whole Bible. This would be self-evident to all Bible readers had not the church in the early centuries abandoned the roots of the faith in the Hebrew Bible and attached itself to the alien thought patterns of the Greek world. That the patriarchs expected to inherit a portion of this planet is obvious, not only from the divine promises made to them, but also from their zeal to be buried in the land of Israel. See Genesis chapter 50 verse 5. Knowing that God had promised to give them permanent residence in the land, they also understood that by being resurrected from death, they would stand once again on the soil of the Holy Land. The land promise to Abraham and his offspring runs like a golden thread through the book of Genesis. The key words in the following passages help us to catch the atmosphere of the Bible's principal theme. I quote, Go to the land which I will show you. Genesis 12, verse 1. All the land which you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Genesis 13, verse 15. A son from your own body will be your heir. Genesis 15, verse 4. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land 
to take possession of it. Genesis 15 verse 7. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land. Genesis 15 verse 18. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Genesis 17, verses 6 to 8. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have selected him. Genesis 18, verses 18 and 19. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Genesis 22, verse 17. God promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. Genesis 24, verse 7. And note that Abraham is a prophet according to Genesis 20, verse 7. And now Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, Genesis 17, verses 19 and 21. Through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned, Genesis 21, verse 12. To you, and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Genesis 26, verse 3. And now Jacob, may God give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Genesis 28, verse 4. I will give you the land on which you're lying. I will bring you back to this land. Genesis 28, verses 13 and 15. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also will give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Genesis 35, verse 12. And now the twelve tribes. God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 50, verse 24. The promise of the nation of Israel received a primary fulfillment under Joshua's leadership. Joshua 21, verse 45. Many commentators would have us believe that the land promised to Israel was no longer relevant once the children of Israel conquered Palestine. Both the law and the writings of the prophets, however, expressed the conviction that Israel's settlement of the land under Joshua was only an incomplete fulfillment of the covenant. Everyone knew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had never been able to call the land their own. They had been aliens living in temporary dwellings. It was obvious then that a further and final event was to be expected 
by which the patriarchs would actually take charge of their inheritance. The point is a simple one, with momentous implications for New Testament Christianity and New Testament Christians who saw themselves as heirs to the Abrahamic covenant with Jesus. Von Rad points out that, quote, promises which have been fulfilled in history are not thereby exhausted of their content, but remain as promises on a different level, as from his book, The Problem of the Hexateuch. Davies agrees, I quote, the tradition, however changed, continued to contain the hope of life in the land. Deuteronomy makes it clear that there is still a future to look forward to. The land has to achieve rest and peace. The land looks forward to a future blessing. That's from Davies, The Gospel and the Land. Naturally then, in the Old Testament, the hope of an ultimate and permanent settlement in the land, accompanied by peace, remains in view. It is appropriate at this point to gather a number of passages, mostly from the prophets and the Psalms, to illustrate the ongoing importance of a great future for the promised land and those counted worthy to inherit it. I quote, My people shall live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Isaiah 32, verse 18. Compare with that Hebrews 4, verse 1, which speaks of the future rest as the objective of the faithful. Another quotation. Descendants from Jacob and Judah will possess my mountains, as to say the land, my chosen people will be righteous, and they will inherit the land forever. Isaiah 65, verse 9. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will inherit the land forever. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Israel will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Isaiah 61, verse 7. Thus they will inherit the land a second time, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads. Isaiah 61, verse 7, from the Septuagint. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Isaiah 57, verse 13. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked will not inherit the land. Proverbs 10, verse 30. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The inheritance of the blameless will endure forever. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. God will exalt you to inherit that land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. There's a future for the man of peace. That's from Psalm 37, 
verses 3 to 37. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess. Jeremiah 30, verse 3. The integrity of divine revelation is at stake in this question of the future of the promised land. The entire plan for rescuing mankind depends on the covenanted land promised to Abraham to be fulfilled in Jesus, who, quote, came to confirm the promises made to the fathers, as Paul said in Romans 15, verse 8. Certainly Abraham had not received what had been promised. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land, and Israel was eventually expelled from her homeland. Jesus, as heir to the promises, was also rejected in the country that belonged to him. I quote, he came to his own land and his own people did not accept him. That's found in John chapter 1 verse 11. Despite centuries of disappointment, the faithful in Israel clung with passionate tenacity to the expectation that the land of Israel would indeed become the scene of ultimate salvation. That hope remained as the beacon light not only of the prophets but also of the original Christian faith as preached by Jesus and the apostles. It was extinguished by the intrusion of a non-territorial hope of, quote, heaven when you die, a contradictory idea that the patriarchs have already, quote, gone to heaven, destroyed the Bible's passionate sense of yearning for a successful outcome of human history on earth when the faithful of all ages would reappear by resurrection to participate in the glories of the new messianic era on earth. A non-biblical view of the future, divorced from the land and the earth, was promoted by Gentiles who dominated the post-biblical church and were unsympathetic with the heritage of Israel, for whom the expectation to be, quote, next year in Jerusalem was their deepest aspiration. The effects of the loss of the land promise in Christianity have been devastating. A major disruption occurred when the faith was severed from its roots in the Abrahamic covenant, which guaranteed a restored Eden. To lose sight of God's promise to Abraham is to strike at the heart of biblical faith and the divine plan. It was like cancelling the American Constitution or abolishing the British monarchy. In direct contradiction to Jesus, Gentilized Christianity has to this day substituted, quote, heaven for dying souls in place of the biblical promise of life in the land on a renewed earth. The message of Jesus' famous beatitude, blessed are the meek, they're going to have the land or the earth as their inheritance. Matthew 5, verse 5, faces constant opposition 
in sermon and funeral service announcing that the dead have, quote, gone to heaven. Gentile antipathy to the covenant made by the one God with Abraham has rendered large parts of the Bible meaningless to churchgoers. The whole framework of Jesus' teaching is dismantled since it relies for its basic terms of reference on the divine promises made to the fathers of Israel. All the major doctrines of the faith are adversely affected by this wholesale departure from the roots of Christianity, which was the religion of a Jew and Christian Jesus, the rightful claimant to Messiahship as defined by the text of Scripture. That murder of the Old Testament biblical text by critical scholarship has been equally responsible for the suppression of the covenant hope of, quote, life in the land. Fragmenting the Hebrew Bible in the interests of a theory of composition, scholarship lost sight of what James Dunn has called the Pauline presupposition about the authority of Scripture, quote, that a single mind and purpose, that's to say God's purpose, inspired the several writings of the Bible. That's from James Dunn's commentary on Romans in the Word Biblical Commentary series, written in 1988. After nearly 2,000 years of uncomprehending Gentile opposition, the promise to Abraham of progeny, blessing, greatness, and the land must be reinstated in the Church's teaching as the coherent and unifying theme of biblical faith in God and Christ and the essential core of the Christian gospel about the kingdom of God. There can be no greater rallying point for fragmented Christendom. No other theme than that which ties together all of divine revelation can provide the churches with the unified message they so desperately need. The gospel, as Jesus and the apostles proclaimed it, rests on the oath-bound covenant with Abraham that in association with Christ, all the faithful of all the nations will be gathered together at the resurrection to possess the land forever. In the words of Jesus, quote, many will come from the north, south, east, and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 8, verse 11, Luke 13, verses 28 and 29. Together, as members of the messianic community drawn from all colors and races, they will, quote, rule as kings upon the earth, Revelation 5, verse 10, which is what Jesus meant by inheriting the earth. In so speaking, Jesus was simply echoing the ancient promise to the faithful that God would, quote, exalt them to inherit the land, Psalm 37, verse 34. Jesus is clearly a prophet of restoration, seeing himself as the agent of God commissioned to head up the divine operation for the rescue of man from the tyranny and deception of the devil. 
The writer to the Hebrews spoke of attaining the, quote, future inhabited earth. Hebrews 2 verse 5. This goal set before Christians was the, quote, greatness or importance of salvation, which at all costs should not be neglected. I quote, how shall we escape if we disregard so great a salvation? For God did not put the coming society on earth under the authority of angels, but the Son of Man. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 5. The Son of Man was a title not only for Jesus, but for the saints corporately. Daniel 7, verse 14, and compare Daniel 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. The New Testament thus expects the prophecies of Daniel to come true. The time is coming when, quote, the saints possess the kingdom, and, quote, all nations will serve and obey them. Daniel 7, 22 and 27. Such is the logical outworking of the promise made to Abraham, the key to the secret of God's activity in human history. I note that a most unfortunate paragraph break between verses 4 and 5 in many Bibles in Hebrews chapter 2 destroys the connection between salvation and supervising the future world order. Resistance to the Covenant The results of traditional theology's attempts to avoid the uncomfortable political element in salvation can be illustrated by the remarks of the pulpit commentary on Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17. The problem for the commentator, who sees no relevance in the land promises for Christians, is to reconcile God's declaration, I will give the land to you, Abraham, with the assertion made by Stephen that God, and I quote, did not give Abraham any inheritance in the land of Palestine, not even a square foot of land, but he promised to give it to him as a possession, everlasting possession, and to his descendants with him. Acts 7 verse 5. How is the apparent contradiction to be resolved? The pulpit commentary makes two attempts to solve the difficulty. Firstly, a retranslation, so that the promise in Genesis 13:15 reads, To you I will give the land, that is to say, to your descendants. In this way, the failure of Abraham ever to receive the land personally will be explained. God promised it only then to his descendants, Israel, and they received it under Joshua. But this is no answer to the problem. Throughout God's dealings with Abraham, the promise of land to the patriarch himself is made repeatedly. Genesis 13:17 reads, Walk through the land and through the length and breadth of the land. To you, I will give it. Abraham would have every right to complain if this were to mean that he personally should not expect to inherit the promised land. The pulpit commentary offers a second way around the difficulty. It maintains that the land did in fact become Abraham's possession during his lifetime. I quote, the land was really given to Abraham 
as a nomadic chief in the sense that he peacefully lived for many years, grew old, and died within its borders. This, however, is to contradict the emphatic biblical assertions that Abraham definitely did not possess the land, and certainly not forever. Another quotation, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations to be their God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. That's a quotation from Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. These, then, are the biblical premises. Abraham is to gain possession of the land forever. He lived out his life as a stranger, owning none of the land except for a small piece of property brought from the Hittites as a burial site for Sarah. Genesis 23, verses 3 to 20. Abraham himself confessed to the Hittite inhabitants of Canaan, I'm an alien and a stranger among you. Genesis 23, verse 4. Stephen's observation was correct. I quote, God gave Abraham no inheritance here in Palestine, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. That's a quotation from Acts chapter 7, verse 5. How then is the covenant grant of land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be realized? The answer provides a key to the Christian faith. There's only one way in which the covenant promises can become historical reality. By the future return to life of Abraham and the faithful by resurrection from the dead. The restoring of the patriarchs to life will bring them their cherished desire and reward to join the Messiah and his followers in the renewed land of Palestine, thus becoming executives with Jesus of the kingdom of God. All this is implied in Jesus' announcement of the gospel. To the land of promise via resurrection. The absolute necessity for resurrection in the divine plan was the point of Jesus' important exchange with the religious teachers of his day. One might expect he would have much to say to theologians on the same topic in the 20th century. The Sadducees did not believe in any resurrection and thus denied the covenant hope of life in the land for the faithful. Jesus' response to their defective understanding of the divine plan involved a stern rebuke that they had departed from God's revelation. I quote, You are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22, verses 29 to 32. The logic of Jesus' argument was simply that since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead, there must be a future resurrection to restore them to life so that their relationship with the living God could be resumed and they could receive what the covenant had guaranteed them. On no account is Jesus' answer to be used as a justification for believing that the patriarchs were already alive. The issue between Jesus and his opponents was whether there would be a future resurrection. Jesus argued that the covenant would fail if the patriarchs were left in their graves. For God to be God of the living, the patriarchs must rise to life again in the future resurrection described in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. The book of Hebrews pursues exactly the same line of argument as it expounds the drama of Abraham's faith in the great promises of God. The mystery of Abraham's failure to attain his place in the land forever can be solved only by a decisive intervention in the future by which he would be restored to life by resurrection. In the course of his discussion, the writer makes statements flatly contradictory to traditional ideas about an afterlife in, quote, heaven. I quote now, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place which he would later receive as his inheritance, Hebrews 8, verse 11. So the story begins. Abraham's inheritance, we observe, is to be the place to which he was invited to go. That is, the geographical Canaan. This is exactly what the Genesis account describes. That very land, according to the New Testament Christian writer, Abraham was destined to receive later. But how much later we are not yet told. The writer of Hebrews continues, by faith, Abraham made his home in the land of the promise like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. That's in Hebrews 11, verse 9. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and other hearers of faith, quote, died in faith, not having received the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and admitted that they were aliens and strangers in the land. Hebrews 11 verse 13. A wrong impression is given by our versions when they translate in the land as on the earth. This might suggest that the patriarchs shared the traditional notion of going to heaven as their destiny. The point, however, is that people who say that they are aliens in the land show that they are looking for a country of their own. Hebrews 11 verse 14, namely the same land renewed under the promised government of the Messiah, the kingdom of God. The much overlooked truth about the land promise for Christians has been rescued by George Wesley Buchanan. 
This promise, rest, inheritance, was inextricably tied to the land of Canaan, which is the place where the patriarchs wandered as sojourners, as in Hebrews 11, verse 13. It was called the land of the promise, Hebrews 11, verse 9, and the heavenly country, Hebrews 11, verse 16. This does not mean that it is not on the earth, any more than the sharers in the heavenly calling of Hebrews 3, 1, who had tasted the heavenly gift, Hebrews 6, verse 4, were not those who lived on earth. Indeed, it was the very land on which the patriarchs dwelt as strangers and wanderers, Hebrews 11:13. Heavenly here, then, means that it is a divine land which God himself has promised. So-called heaven will be on earth. Traditional explanations of these verses attempt to evade the implications of Hebrews 11, verses 8 and 9. Heaven, as the reward of the faithful, will not fit with this plain biblical statement that Abraham was expecting to inherit the very land he had lived in. Abraham was obviously resident in a geographical location on earth, and he anticipated returning to that land and possessing it. I quote, He made his home in the land of the promise. Hebrews 11 verse 9, The promised land for the faithful is to be on this planet, our own earth renewed and restored. It will not do to argue that Canaan was a, quote, type of heaven as a place for departed souls at death. Such an idea has invaded Christianity from the world of Greek philosophy and obstructs belief in the Bible's promise of an inheritance in the land of life, which is Palestine as the center of the future messianic world order. Resurrection in the future at the return of Jesus is the only path by which the patriarchs can achieve their goal and possess the land which they have never owned. Indeed, as Hebrews emphasizes, none of the distinguished faithful ever, quote, received what had been promised, the inheritance of the promised land. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 39. They died in faith, a virtue closely linked to hope, fully confident of the resurrection which would bring them into possession of the land with the Messiah. This is a very far cry from the idea which so many have accepted under the pressure of post-biblical Gentile tradition that the patriarchs and subsequent believers have already gained a reward in heaven. Paul and Abraham. Paul treats the story of Abraham as the model of Christian faith with no hint that Abraham's inheritance is different from that of every Christian believer. In fact, the very opposite is true. Abraham is, and I quote, the father of all who believe. That's in Romans 4 verse 11. Abraham demonstrated the essence of Christian faith by being willing to believe God's plan to grant him land, 
progeny and blessing forever. Faith for Abraham was an eager response to the divine initiative expressed in words. It is precisely that kind of faith which Jesus demands with his summons to, quote, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is thus the exponent par excellence of Abrahamic faith. He gives up everything, including his life, for the cause of God's grand design for the rescue of fallen mankind, and he calls on his supporters to do the same. Following the example of Abraham, who was willing to give up even family for the divine cause, Genesis 12 verse 1, Jesus invited his followers to recognize the prior claims of the family of faith. His real relatives were not his blood brothers and sisters, but, and I quote, those who hear the word of God, which is the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19, those who hear the word of God and do it, Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. Loyalty to Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom supersedes the claims of family and country. Luke 14, verse 26 and 27, and verse 33, and compare with that Genesis 12, verse 1. Justification, that is, coming into a right relationship with God, includes an intelligent grasp of God's plan, believing, like Abraham, in what God has promised to do. Romans 4, verse 3 and verse 13. The scope of the gospel message is wider than just an acceptance of the death and resurrection of Christ. Apostolic faith invites participation in the ongoing divine plan in history, which we might call, quote, Operation Kingdom. It involves grasping the divinely revealed future as the goal of the Christian venture. Grasping what God is doing in world history enables a man to attune his life to God within the teaching of Jesus as both the prophet and the king of the kingdom. A Christian, according to Paul, is one who, and I quote, follows in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. That's Romans 4, verse 12. The link with the patriarchal covenant could not be clearer. Abraham's faith, and I quote, was characterized by, or based on, a hope which was determined solely by the promise of God. Abraham's faith was firm confidence in God as the one who determines the future according to what he has promised. That's the commentary on Romans by James Dunn. So Jesus and the apostles invite us with the message of the kingdom, Mark 1, 14 and 15, Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, 8, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. With that message of the kingdom, we are invited to preparation for the great event 
which is nothing less than the final outcome of the covenant made with Abraham and his spiritual offspring. Paul defines that promise and specifies the Christian objective. He reminds us that Abraham was to be, quote, heir of the world, Romans 4 verse 13, which is simply to repeat the promise of Jesus that, quote, the meek are destined to inherit the land or the earth. That's in Matthew 5 verse 5, and compare with that Genesis 17 verse 8. As James Dunn says, I quote, the idea of inheritance was a fundamental part of Jewish understanding of their covenant relationship with God, above all, indeed almost exclusively, in connection with the land, the land of Canaan, theirs by right of inheritance as promised to Abraham. This is one of the most emotive themes in Jewish national self-identity. Central to Jewish self-understanding was the conviction that Israel was the Lord's inheritance. Integral to the national faith was the conviction that God had given Israel the inheritance of Palestine, the promised land. It is this axiom which Paul evokes and refers to the new Christian movement as a whole, Gentiles as well as Jews. They are heirs of God. Israel's special relationship with God has been extended to all in Christ, and the promise of the land has been transformed into the promise of the kingdom. That inheritance of the kingdom, full citizenship under the rule of God alone, is something still awaited by believers. That's from James Dunn's commentary on Romans in the Word Biblical Commentary series. It is easy to see how devastating to New Testament Christianity any severing of the link between Christ and the Abrahamic covenant will be. While Jesus and the apostles labored to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom as the essence of the unfolding covenant guarantees given to Israel and now extended to all believers, traditional Christianity has interfered with this principal biblical thesis. It has promoted a goal in, quote, heaven, which makes impossible or pointless the fulfillment of the land promise confirmed by Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 5, and Revelation 5, verse 10. Our fathers are not, quote, in heaven, and never expected to be. They looked forward, as did New Testament Christians, to entering and inheriting the land of promise, the kingdom of God on earth, by resurrection from the dead. This re-entry into the land of Canaan renewed would mean the recovery of divine rule on earth, the reversal of the disaster which had overcome mankind from the beginning. For this, quote, joy which lay before him, the Messiah had died at the hands of his own unbelieving people. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For this inheritance, granting the right to rule in the kingdom, the early Christians suffered 
as part of their preparation for kingship. Having embraced the message of the kingdom, they strove to be, and I quote, worthy of God, who calls us into his kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. The path to glory was not easy. I quote, it is through much tribulation that we are destined to enter the kingdom. Acts 14, verse 22. That is, to attain to kingship with Jesus in the coming new government. Again, we must insist on the direct link between early Christianity and the covenant with Abraham. As Dr. James Dunn says, and I quote, the degree to which Paul's argument is determined by the current self-understanding of his own people is clearly indicated by his careful wording which picks up four key elements in that self-understanding. That's to say, the covenant promised to Abraham and his seed, the inheritance of the land as its central element. It had become almost a commonplace of Jewish teaching that the covenant promised that Abraham's seed would inherit the earth. The promise thus interpreted was fundamental to Israel's self-consciousness as God's covenant people. It was the reason why God had chosen them in the first place from among all the nations of the earth, the justification for holding themselves distinct from other nations and the comforting hope that made their current national humiliation endurable. Paul's case reveals the strong continuity he saw between his faith and the fundamental promise of his people's scriptures. Paul had no doubt that the gospel he proclaimed was a continuation and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But he was equally clear that the heirs of Abraham's promise were no longer to be identified in terms of the law. For Genesis 15 verse 6 showed with sufficient clarity that the promise was given and accepted through faith quite apart from the law in whole or in part. That's from James Dunn's commentary on Romans. The point to be grasped is that Paul does not question the content of the promise. How could he without overthrowing the whole revelation given by the Bible? The territorial promise was clearly and repeatedly spelled out in the Genesis account and was his people's most cherished national treasure. To faithful Israel, represented first by Abraham, God had given assurance that they would inherit the land as a restored paradise. The glory of Paul's ministry is to introduce a revolutionary new fact that this grand prospect is open to all who believe in the Messiah as the seed of Abraham and the one who would head up the new administration of the kingdom. It was obviously to Messiah that the promises were made as the distinguished descendant of Abraham. But Gentile Christians upon accepting the claims of Jesus as the Christ of Israel, 
may acquire a full share in the same promised inheritance. Paul reaches a triumphant moment in his argument when he declares to his Gentile readers that, and I quote, if you are a Christian, you count as Abraham's descendants and you are heirs of the world. Romans 4 verse 13, according to the promise made to Abraham, as in Galatians 3 verse 29. The promises are sure, however, only, as Paul says, to quote, those who are of the faith of Abraham. Romans 4 verse 16. That is, those whose faith is of the same type as his, resting on the same divine arrangements. Hence, Paul speaks of the need for Christians to become, quote, sons of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 7, or seed of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 2 and Romans 4 16. And to reckon Abraham as their spiritual father. Romans 4 verse 11, to walk in his steps. Romans 4 12, and consider him a model of Christian faith. Galatians 3 verse 9, because the gospel had been preached to him, to Abraham, in advance, Galatians 3, verse 8. But how much do we hear today about the Christian gospel having its basis in the covenant promises made to Abraham? Paul speaks to the Galatian church about the, quote, blessing of Abraham, now made available to all in Christ. This phrase is quoted from Genesis 28, verse 4, where it's defined. It means, and I quote, to take possession of the land where you are now living as aliens, the land which God gave to Abraham. Once again, an illuminating link is made between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament Christianity, which provides a wonderful basis for restructuring the present fragmented church on a biblical foundation. Never for a moment did Paul abandon the roots of the faith revealed in God's dealings with Abraham. Since the promised land of Canaan would one day be the center of the messianic government, it was obvious that inheritance of the land implied inheritance of the world. The promise remains geographical, and territorial related to the earth of the coming age and corresponding exactly with Jesus' affirmation of his Jewish heritage when he promised the meek, again quoting the Hebrew Bible, the inheritance of the earth or land, Matthew 5 verse 5, citing Psalm 37 verse 11. Jesus believed that Jerusalem would yet be worthy of the title City of the Great King, Matthew 5, verse 35, and that believers would supervise a new world order with him. You'll find that in Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 3, verse 21, Revelation 5, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. 
In short, the promise of the land is repeated in the New Testament as the promise of the kingdom of God, which is the basis of the Christian gospel. The kingdom is offered to believers as their destiny. It's the renewed, quote, inhabited earth of the future, Hebrews 2 verse 5, which is not to be subject to angels, but to the Messiah and the saints. The, quote, Israel of God are the saints, according to Galatians 6, 16. They are the true circumcision, Philippians 3, verse 3. Much of the excitement of New Testament Christians lies in the high privilege extended to them as the people of God in Christ. Their hope corresponds exactly with the hope of the prophets of Israel. J. Skinner observes that, and I quote, the main point of Jeremiah's hope for the future is that in some sense, a restoration of the Israelite nationality was the form in which he conceived the kingdom of God. That's from Skinner in his book, Prophecy and Religion, written in 1922. Jesus, who also considered himself to be a prophet, Luke 13, 33, would have agreed with that fact. Paul's application of the Abrahamic covenant to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, does not lead him to think that unconverted Israel will remain forever outside the divine blessing in Christ. In Romans 11, verses 25 and 26, Paul looked forward as an important element in the future development of the kingdom to a collective conversion of a remnant of the nation of Israel at the second coming. I note that Micah 2 verse 12 envisages the restoration of, quote, all of Jacob as the remnant of Israel. The Jew-Gentile church, however, in Paul's thinking, would be leaders in the Messianic kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. In this way, the Abrahamic covenant guarantees a part in the Messiah's rule for all those who now believe the gospel, and it assures us that there will, in addition, be a further wave of conversion when national Israel finally accepts her Messiah. To that event, the apostles rightly look forward when, in a final conversation with the departing Jesus, they asked, and I quote, Has the time now arrived for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. For those who have not had the benefit of a Calvinist training, this question will present no problem. After all, if you've been told by Jesus that you're going to administer the 12 tribes, as we find in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, you would anticipate with some eagerness the restoration of those tribes in the kingdom. Mention of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, verse 5, which was the endowment of royalty and priests, 
very naturally prompted the apostles' keen interest in the denouement of the plan of salvation, but note carefully, the coming of the Spirit was not the same as the coming of the kingdom. Acts 1 verses 5 to 7. Worldwide inheritance. It was common to Jewish thinking and to Paul, as well as to the whole New Testament, that the whole world was to benefit from the messianic promise made to Abraham that he would, quote, inherit the world. Romans 4 verse 13, by inheriting the promised land. This fact can be seen from both biblical and extra-biblical texts. A celebrated messianic psalm, which Jesus in his revelation interprets as a Christian prophecy for himself and the church, as in Revelation 1 verse 1, is demonstrably a political psalm outlining the career of the Messiah. I have installed my king on Zion. Ask of me, that is, ask of God, and I will make the nations Messiah's inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 6, applied to Jesus in Revelation 12, verse 5, and applied to the church in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. Another quotation, May God strengthen you, and may you inherit all the earth. That's from the extra-biblical book, Jubilees, chapter 22, verse 14. And there will be kings from you, from Jacob, that is. They will rule everywhere that the tracks of mankind have been trod, and I will give your seed all the land under heaven. Compare with that Daniel 7, verse 27, the kingdom under the whole heaven, and they will rule in all nations as they have desired. That's from Jubilees, chapter 32, verse 19. But to the elect there will be light, joy, and peace, and they will inherit the earth. That's from 1 Enoch, chapter 5, verse 7. Again, the righteous are confident of the world which you have promised to them with an expectation full of joy. Second Baruch, chapter 14, 12 and 13. The righteous will receive the world that is promised to them. Second Baruch 51, verse 3. Another quotation, if the world has indeed been created for us, why do we not possess our world as an inheritance? How long will this be so? That's from the extra-biblical book, 4th Ezra, chapter 6, verse 59. The poignant New Testament answer to this Jewish question is that the people of the covenant have not, as a whole, accepted the one claiming to be their Messiah. How much a distorted traditional Gentile Christianity may be to blame for this is a matter for serious consideration. Paul is hopeful 
that many of his compatriots will finally recognize the returning Jesus. Meanwhile, he continues to propagate the message of the Messiah by which first Jew and then Gentile is invited into the Messianic community preparing to rule in the kingdom. Pauline theology is born of the conviction that Abraham was designated, quote, heir of the world, Romans 4, verse 13, an idea which fits naturally into the texts we have just cited. Henry Alford comments on the connection between Paul's aspirations and Jewish hopes. The rabbis already had seen and Paul, who had been brought up in their learning, held fast to the truth that much more was intended in the words, in thee or in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed than the mere possession of Canaan. They distinctly trace the gift of the world to this promise, Genesis 12, verse 3. The inheritance of the world is that ultimate lordship over the whole world which Abraham, as the father of the faithful in all peoples, and Christ, as the seed of the promise, shall possess. That's from Henry Offord's Greek New Testament, Volume 2. A distinguished German commentator notes that to be, quote, seed of Abraham meant that one was destined to have, quote, dominion over the world, based on Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. And I quote, Your descendants shall gain possession of the gates, that's to say the towns of their enemies. I find that from the commentary by H.A.W. Meyer, written in 1884. With this promise in mind, Jesus envisages the faithful assuming authority over urban populations. I quote, Well done, loyal servant. Assume responsibility for ten cities. That's a quotation from Luke 19, verse 17. The international critical commentary on Romans 4, verse 13 catches the flavor of Old Testament anticipation of the Messianic kingdom. It speaks of the promise that Abraham's seed, in Christ that is, should, quote, enjoy worldwide dominion, or the right to universal dominion which will belong to the Messiah and his people, and the promise made to Abraham and his descendants of worldwide messianic rule. That's from the International Critical Commentary on Romans by Sande and Hedlam. Something of the fervor of Israel for the land may be seen in the 14th and 18th benedictions repeated in the synagogue since A.D. 70. I quote, Be merciful, O Lord our God, in your great mercy towards Israel, your people, and towards Jerusalem, and towards Zion, the abiding place of your glory, and towards your temple, and your habitation, 
and towards the kingdom of the house of David, the builder of Jerusalem, your city. Bestow your peace upon Israel, your people, and upon your city, and upon your inheritance, and bless us, all of us together. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who makes peace. Even when the land is not mentioned directly, it's implied in the city and the temple, which become the quintessence of the hope of salvation. Exactly the same hope is reflected in the New Testament, binding early Christianity to its Abrahamic or Davidic origins in the Hebrew Bible. I quote, The Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. That's in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. Another quotation. God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Luke 1, verse 55. Another quotation. God has raised up a horn, that's to say a political dominion, in the house of his servant David, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. That's in Luke 1, verses 69, 72, and 73. Again, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke 2, verse 25. Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to redemption in Jerusalem. Luke 2, verse 38. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's in Mark 11, verse 10. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, that's to say a Christian, according to Matthew 27, verse 57, and he was a prominent member of the council and was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Mark 15, verse 43. Another quotation. We, that's to say the disciples of Jesus, the Christians, had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Luke 24, verse 21. The apostles asked, Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. It is because of my hope in what God promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. That's from Acts chapter 26 verses 6 and 7. The evidence is overwhelming that New Testament Christianity has not abandoned the territorial hopes of the prophets. The disciples' question about the restoration of Israel arises out of a 40-day period of instruction on the kingdom of God, as we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 6. On trial, 
for his faith. Paul publicly defined Christianity as hope for the fulfillment of the patriarchal promise. He expressly identifies this Christian objective as the promise, and I quote, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, Acts 26, verse 7. The nature of this expectation is defined by a rabbinical saying of the 3rd century, reflecting the ancient prospect of life in the land. I quote, Why did the patriarchs long for burial in the land of Israel? Because the dead of the land of Israel will be the first to be resurrected in the days of the Messiah and to enjoy the years of Messiah. That's from the Hebrew commentary, Genesis Rabbah. Heaven as the storehouse of a future reward. References to, quote, heaven in the New Testament are limited to contexts in which the future reward of believers is said to be preserved now as treasure with God in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 12. And there the text reads, your reward is great in heaven. The Christian reward is preserved in heaven and it will come from heaven with Jesus at his return. So in heaven is equivalent to with God. Heaven as a place removed from the earth is however never in scripture the destination of the believer, neither at death nor at the resurrection. Christians must now grasp what is promised to them. They must store up treasure with God and expect to receive their reward when Jesus brings it to the earth at his future second coming. A man may save his money for retirement in a bank. He does not, however, retire in the bank. When Paul speaks of, quote, the Jerusalem above, which is our mother, in Galatians 4, verse 26, he does not mean that Christians go to, quote, heaven at death. He's quoting a messianic psalm, which describes Zion, or Jerusalem, as, quote, the mother of us all. Psalm 87, verse 5, from the Septuagint Greek version. As often in Jewish thinking, the good things of the future are said to be stored with God now in preparation for their revelation on the day of the Messiah's appearance in power and glory. Christians are those whose names are inscribed in the roll of those who will be given life in Jerusalem. That's a quotation from Isaiah 4, verse 3. Paul speaks of, quote, the faith and love which spring from hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. Colossians 1, verse 5. Peter sees in the new birth produced by the gospel a, quote, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, leading to an inheritance, that's to say, inheritance of the kingdom, which can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, 
until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. The New Testament is consistent with its underlying theme, the gospel of the kingdom, quote, promised to those who love God. James 2, verse 5. Belief in the gospel of the kingdom in apostolic times was not confined to belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus only, but included the invitation to prepare for a place in the Messiah's worldwide dominion to be introduced at his return to the earth. The situation is very different in contemporary preaching when little or nothing is preached about inheriting the earth with Jesus. There's an urgent need for churches to heed Paul's warning not to be, quote, moved away from the hope held out in the gospel. Colossians 1 verse 23. The loss of New Testament hope can be traced to the loss of the gospel of the kingdom, which in turn is symptomatic of the loss of the roots of Christianity in the Hebrew Bible. Faith in God's world plan. Nonsense is made of the New Testament scheme and God's unfolding plan for world history when it is proposed that the Christian destiny is to be enjoyed in a location removed from the earth. This destroys at a blow the promises given to Abraham and the faithful that they are to inherit the land and the world. There is no resolution of the original failure of man to carry out the divine mandate to rule the world if, in fact, the world never experiences the restoration of divine rule. The Christian faith is permanently frustrated when hope for the restoration of peace on earth is denied. The substitution of, quote, heaven at death for the reward of inheriting the earth undermines the revelation of God's plan for mankind. The repeated offer of, quote, heaven in popular preaching perpetuates a notion which confuses Bible readers and renders meaningless the whole hope of the prophets based on the covenant that the world is going to enjoy an unparalleled era of blessing and international peace under the just rule of the Messiah and the resurrected faithful, those who believe in the kingdom of God and the name, that is the Messiahship, and all that this entails of Jesus, and those who are baptized in response to that early creed in Acts 8 verse 12, which reads, When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. This text remains a model for evangelism and calls the contemporary church back to its roots in the covenants of promise made with, I quote, the father of the faithful, which can be enjoyed only in Messiah Jesus. For the fulfillment of the divine plan for rescue, we are to pray, Thy kingdom come.
and strive to conduct ourselves, quote, worthy of God, who is calling us into his kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. The truth about our Christian destiny will be reinstated when we return to biblical language about, quote, entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, inheriting the earth, Matthew 5, 5, and reigning as kings on the earth, Revelation 5, verse 10, or reigning with the Messiah for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. The Gentile mind, which displays an anti-Semitic dislike for things messianic, has prevailed for so long that only a revolutionary return to the text of Scripture will break our bad habits. The abandonment of language about, quote, heaven will set us in the right direction and teach us to love the words of Jesus. The way will then be opened for us to understand that Christianity is God's answer to the initial failure of man in Adam, that the gospel is a call to kingship, and that a saint is one appointed to rule with the Messiah on earth in the coming kingdom. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. The tragedy of man is of kingship lost. The goal of man is kingship regained in association with the great King Messiah who has pioneered the way to victory over the world. Henry Alford's comment is a much-needed corrective summoning us to return to biblical Hebrew Christianity. I quote, The general tenor of prophecy and the analogy of the divine dealings point unmistakably to this earth purified and renewed and not to the heavens in any ordinary sense of the term as the eternal habitation of the blessed. That's from Henry Orford's Greek New Testament, Volume 1. Henry Orford's keen insight reinstates the hope for the future of mankind when the blessings granted to Abraham find their fulfillment in the kingdom. Jacob and Paul shared the same cheering outlook. I quote, May God give you the blessing of Abraham, my father, to you and to your seed with you. The inheritance of the land in which you now reside as a foreigner, the land which God gave to Abraham. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 28, verse 4. The blessing of Abraham will come to the Gentiles in Christ. Galatians 3, verse 14. Hope for mankind, based on God's gracious dealings with Abraham, was the dominant theme of all the prophets of Israel. In order to follow Jesus, in order to follow Jesus, the greatest of all the prophets, as we read in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, and also in Acts chapter 3, 22, and Acts 7, verse 37, Jesus, the Son of God, Christ, and the Apostle of our faith, in order to follow him, 
we must now turn our attention to their vision.